Open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 11. So we're going to be looking at lesson number 55, to whom much is given. And to begin with, we're going to be talking about greater privilege bringing greater judgment. And for this, we'll be looking at Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30. And then in the second half of our lesson, we'll be talking about how greater pardon brings greater love. And for that, we will look at the wonderful story of the forgiven woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and her and her hair. So that is going to be the best part of the lesson, I feel. But I don't want to, I don't want to rob it of its glory, so I hope we can give it justice. And we'll be looking at Luke 7, verses 36 to 50 for that part of it. All right, let's look, first of all, at Matthew 11 beginning at verse 20, where it says, Then began he, of course, speaking of the Lord Jesus, to upbraid, which means what? Does anybody know what upbraid? doesn't mean to braid the hair. (laughs) It means to uh, scorn. To scorn the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. And here's what he said. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Wow, some harsh words there. John the Baptist's doubt, which we discussed in our lesson last week, had been the doubt of a true believer. It was not the doubt of unbelief. It was the doubt of his confused mind, you know, not the unbelief of his will. However, the citizens, by and large, of the cities of Chorazin, which was about two and a half miles north of Capernaum. Capernaum, remember, was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, which was just a little bit north of Chorazin. They're all within like three miles of each other. So anyway, the, city, the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and then Capernaum were not wrestling with doubt as John the Baptist had been. They were content with indifference, which is an even worse form of willful unbelief than outright rejection. And we're going to be discussing that truth as we look at this lesson. Now, this passage that I just read contains the Lord's woe pronouncement upon these three most privileged of all Jewish cities. Remember, it was in this area, this very area, that he had made his headquarters for his entire Galilean ministry. He spent more time here than anywhere else during his three and a half years of earthly ministry. And he spoke the Sermon on the Mount in this very area. And he performed more miracles here than anywhere else, including, you know, Jerusalem. Verse 20 says that, that he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. Now, the reason for this scolding reprimand of his was what? Because they 
repented not, we're told. Why does the Lord condemn these particular cities, do you think, even to the point of saying that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the Gentile openly Baal-worshipping cities of Tyre, they were ancient cities of uh, Tyre and Sidon. And why do you think that he says it will be more tolerable on Judgment Day um, for, for Capernaum than for the wickedly immoral city of ancient Sodom? Remember Sodom, which the Lord destroyed with um, brim, fire and brimstone because of so much wicked immorality going on there? Why does he say that it will be, you know, why does he condemn these particular cities? Why is this? Well, the reason which gives us an important biblical truth is because these cities had greater privilege and greater opportunity to believe on Christ. And with greater privilege and greater opportunity comes what? Greater responsibility. We kind of touched on this. It's interesting that this follows on the, follows on the heels of what we talked about last week with John the Baptist. You know, being the, no one was greater up to his day, but then even king, kingdom citizens are greater than he is. And the reason for that is because we can see, Father, we have the whole picture, and therefore we are more responsible. Here we're talking about greater responsibility again. The Lord's own words regarding this very important biblical truth are found over in Luke twelve forty eight, where he actually said, For whomsoever much is given... Much is required. More than any other people who have ever lived, except, I I guess the only ones I could think of would be Adam and Eve, but more than any other people other than Adam and Eve, the citizens of these three cities had witnessed the incredible, irrefutable evidence of Christ's divine power and his divine authority and his goodness. More than any other people, they had enjoyed the unique privilege and opportunity to hear the word of God from the very Son of God. And yet, although a few, such as the Roman centurion, who was from where? Capernaum. He wasn't a Capernaumite, he was a Roman citizen. But he did live in Capernaum. So yet, although a few did commit themselves to following him as his disciples or learners, and a few even became his select apostles from this area, because remember, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Nathaniel were all from this very area, either from Capernaum or nearby Bethsaida. Yet, and, even, and although even uh, large crowds watched in utter amazement as he performed all manner of healings and exorcisms of devils, and they greatly enjoyed the sensationalism of having him around, and they were thrilled to know that nobody in their area, as long as he was there, ever needed to be sick or handicapped or blind or a leper or whatever. They were thrilled with having him there. Yet the vast majority of the people of these cities remained spiritually indifferent to him. In other words, their lives inwardly were unaffected by his person and his presence among them. After he passed through their cities, their lives went on as usual. Few of them were really changed, you know, in in their hearts and souls by the fact that the Messiah himself, the promised seed of the woman, 
had actually walked and talked and worked and lived among them. Now, they didn't openly criticize him as the religious rulers down in Jerusalem did whenever he was there. And they didn't attempt to kill him as his own hometown citizens of Nazareth had tried to do. As a matter of fact, they even liked him. You'd say they liked him, right? They liked him. Who wouldn't like a healer living among them? They liked him and they respected him and they loved the good things he did for them. However, their hearts and their souls, as I said, remained unaffected by and large. There were few exceptions, but by and large, they remain unaffected. And we know this because Jesus himself says that they repented not. They did not come to see themselves as spiritual beggars. They didn't come to see themselves as poor in spirit, as needy sinners who were without hope apart from the forgiveness and the righteousness that he alone could give them. They did not see, even as the Samaritans of Sychar had, that he was the Savior. They even saw and understood that he was the Savior of the whole world, but they didn't see that. The citizens of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were like the second group of people in the Lord's parable of the royal wedding feast, which we won't get to till we get to Matthew 20, 22. They were invited to attend the great feast of the king for his son, but we are told they paid no attention and went their way. Not God's way, not the king's way, but they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his own business. You see, these invitees in this parable, they, they didn't ill-treat the king's servants who came to them with this invitation to come to the king's banquet. They didn't, they didn't try to kill them as uh, one of the other groups did, which represented, by the way, the religious rulers. But nonetheless, uh, they were excluded from the feast because they did not accept the invitation. Has Christ given the citizens of northern Galilee an invitation to come to him? He has. You know, when he says, strive to enter in at the straight gate, that leads to life. He has given them an invitation. We're going to see he even gives them another chance in this lesson because he extends another invitation in verse 28 when he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Apathy and indifference will keep a person as much from entering into the kingdom of heaven as open unbelief. And that's just the truth of the matter. You can't be indifferent or apathetic toward God. In fact, you're even more accountable. There will be greater judgment when you're indifferent, when you know the facts and you're still indifferent. And for all those like these Galilean citizens who remained unaffected and indifferent in the light of so much truth, in the light of so much opportunity and so much privilege, Jesus himself, who is going to be the judge at Judgment Day, said that there will be greater judgment. Can we trust him and what he says? He is the one who will be at the great white throne judgment. Remember, we've always already talked about that. It will be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says there will be greater judgment, we can, we can uh, believe what he says. 
And notice that he again spoke about hell. How many weeks has this been going on? Where, you know, every week he again speaks of hell. He, he spoke of hell when he specifically said to the uh, Capernaumites that she, they would not be exalted to heaven as her citizens thought that they deserved, but rather where would she descend? To Hades, which speaks of the place of eternal punishment for the unsaved. And notice, too, that the Lord's words in this woe pronouncement teach us that there are degrees of punishment in Hades or hell. Did you know that? Just as there are degrees of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be degrees of judgment in hell for the unsaved. In verses 21 and 22, he said that if the mighty works that had been done by him in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in the Phoenician uh, seaport cities of ancient Tyre and Sidon, which were noted, those two cities were noted for their godlessness and their wickedness and their immorality even by other pagans. That's how wicked they were. But he said, you know, if, if his mighty works had been done in those two cities, they would have repented long ago. Reminds me of the citizens of Nineveh. They all, every, everyone from the king on down repented when Jonah finally got there, didn't they? They did. And that, that was the greatest revival ever. But Jesus says that the citizens of Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And therefore, he went on to say, but I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Very serious words there. In verses 23 and 24, we learn that the same will be true on judgment day for the citizens of the wickedly perverted Sodom, a city whose name has become synonymous with the, the worst of uh, sins, well, I don't know, there's a lot of worse bad sins, but with great immorality and uh, depravity. Remember that the citizens of Sodom were those who even tried to rape God's holy angels. That's getting pretty stinking perverted in my book, you know. Mm. But the citizens of Sodom, Sodom only had Lot, <laughs> Yeah, you can't really compare Lot with Jesus Christ. They had Lot as their testimony. He didn't fare too well. But the citizens of Capernaum had Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, they will, the citizens of Sodom, will somehow have a lesser degree of eternal punishment than the indifferent citizens of Capernaum. Again, that is amazing to think about. It is. It's scary when we think about the opportunities and when we think about the privileges and the special blessings that citizens of 21st century America have. I mean, it really should make us tremble as a nation. And it should make you and I as believers tremble for the millions of citizens in this blessed, privileged country who have not trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. No nation has ever, ever enjoyed the opportunities and privileges to repent and be saved, uh, you know, in Jesus Christ as we have as a nation. 
except Israel, who had all the prophets. Other than Israel, no nation has ever had so many blessings and privileges and opportunities. So therefore, how shall we escape if we neglect, if we're apathetic or indifferent towards so great salvation? We're much more accountable. When I think about every time we witness to somebody or any, every time somebody hears the gospel presented on radio or TV or, you know, because it's out there. There's no excuse for anybody in this country to say they've never heard the gospel because it's out there. And they, when they hear it and reject it, they are going to be so much more accountable on Judgment Day. So that's a warning, too, you know, for anybody in here. If you've been listening, you know, to these lessons on the Lord Jesus Christ and have not done anything about inviting him into your heart as your Lord and Savior, woe unto you because you are setting yourself up for even harsher judgment. Very, very serious. So have you, if you have not come to him, please listen to this next part when we get into the invitation by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we look at the remainder of Matthew 11, we are going to consider that invitation, very important invitation. I call it the great invitation, just like the great commission that the Lord gave, you know, when he said go out into all the world and teach, you know, baptize. I call this the great invitation, the great invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But before he spoke it, he preceded this great invitation with a prayer. And somehow I neglected, I don't know why, but I neglected to put that prayer in your book. So if you would please make sure you mark your book somewhere that this is the fifth prayer in our Life of Christ study. It should be up there at the beginning where I've got, I think we're going to be talking about the fourth parable, right, on page one of your notes. Not page one. What is page number? (laughs) Fifteen. Where I've got the fourth parable is the parable of the two debtors right near there somewhere. Put the fifth prayer is the prayer of Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27. I call it the prayer preceding the invitation or the great invitation. All right, and while you're writing that down, let me read it. It says, at that time... Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. All right, that is the prayer, verses 25 to 27. It's important for us to see the significance of the Lord's prayer at that time. Now, those are the first words that Matthew gives us in verse 25, at that time, because it tells us that even in the darkest, bleakest, most depressing of circumstances, uh, which had just occurred for the Lord at this time when he lifted up his heart and prayed to the Lord. Remember, his own herald, John the Baptist, has just expressed doubt about him, whether he truly, you know, is the Messiah. And the people whom he had spent so much of his time and energy with were indifferent toward him. And the only one who he could marvel over his great faith was not even a Jew, He was a Roman centurion. This was the setting. All these things had just happened. 
He had just condemned the Jews for being like children playing in the marketplace, remember? So this is the setting for this prayer. And that's why it's important to see the words, at that time, he paused to pray and he lifted his heart to his heavenly father and said what? In the midst of dark circumstances, he said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Isn't that wonderful? What an example he sets for us. Doesn't it tell us that we are to remember that even in the dark times, we are to gaze where? Heavenward. And to thank God, even in the midst of troubles and trials, we are to thank God knowing that he is sovereign. That he is still, who? The Lord of heaven and earth. He is still on the throne. Be still and know that he is God. He is still in control. And then he went on to praise God. He praised him for his wisdom in hiding these things. These things speaks of the truths about himself and about the kingdom of God. He says he he, he praises him for his wisdom in hiding those things from the wise and prudent and revealing them instead to who? To babes. Now, the contrast between the wise and the prudent and the babes is not a contrast between the knowledgeable and and the ignorant. It's not a contrast between the educated elite and the uneducated commoners or between those, you know, who have a brilliant IQ and those who are not quite so smart or maybe even simple-minded. <laughs> Instead, it's a contrast between those who think in their self-righteous pride that they can save themselves by their own human wisdom, their own human works, their achievements, their man-made religions and philosophies, and those who know that they cannot, that they cannot save themselves. It's a contrast between those people like the scribes and the Pharisees who rely on themselves and those who rely alone on God. This gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone, not of works, lest any man should boast, is the way of salvation that is good to God. That's what he says in uh, verse 26. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. Uh, It's good in the sight of God because it honors his grace and it honors uh, him. It brings glory to him, not to man. If man could work himself into God's presence, who would get the glory? Man. So this, this, this way is good in God's sight because it brings him the glory. And it brings his son the glory. God loves to help the babes. You know, what, what is a child like? A child is very trustworthy. He doesn't have all these preconceived ideas that he hasn't been brainwashed. He has humble trust in his father, you know, in his parents. God loves to help the humble and the repentant who come to him knowing that they are helpless without him. We always seem to keep... Keep going back to the first beatitude, don't we? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 3, when he said, Except ye be converted and become as little children. 
in your humility and in your trust, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So that's the contrast he is giving between the wise and the prudent and the babes. Now, in the last verse of this prayer, the Lord again, as he had done in both verse 25 and in verse 26, refers to God as his father. And he actually, in verse 27, speaks of God as his father three times. So total five times in this short prayer, he calls God his father. And three times in verse 27, he refers to himself as the son. (laughs) Now this, again, in prayer form, was a definite claim to his deity. We know that the Jews would never do this. We've talked about this before. They would never call God their father. That was blasphemous to them. In fact, when Jesus had done this very same thing after he had healed the man at the, at the pool of Bethesda in John five seventeen, we were told that the Jews sought the more to kill him, not only because he had broken the Sabbath, because he healed that man on the Sabbath day, but why else? Because he also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. They understood that for him to call God his father and to refer to himself as God's son, that he was claiming deity. Was he claiming deity? Did he have a right to be claiming deity? Yes, he alone could do that because he was God's son, is God's son. In his statement of uh, verse 27, the Lord not only again made claim to deity, but he also spoke of his authority from the father and his intimacy with the Father. He said that all things, all, A-L-L, all things had been handed over to him by his Father. He was speaking there of all authority had been given to him by his Father in heaven. All truth had been given to him. All power had been given to him. And what proved that that was true, that he did have all authority given to him by God his Father? His miracles, His miracles had already proven this to be so. He had proven by his miracles that he had absolute authority over every single realm of life. All kinds of illnesses, all kinds of diseases, handicaps, even leprosy. He had had absolute authority even over Satan's realm because he could cast out demons. He had authority over nature. He even had authority over death. Remember when he raised the widow's son back to life. And he had authority over sin. He had forgiven the sins of the paralytic lowered through the roof of of probably Peter's house right there in Capernaum. So he did have all authority and he had proven it. Then in speaking of his intimacy with the Father, the Lord Jesus said, And no man knoweth the Son, speaking of himself, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son. And he, to whomsoever the Son, will reveal him. Again, you know, the Lord just kept shocking his audiences. Even when he was praying, you know, he was shocking them. No human being, regardless of how intelligent he may be or perceive himself to be, could ever know the mind and the person of the eternal Son of God as the eternal Father. And the same is true of the eternal son knowing the eternal father. So it is impossible for sinners to know God without the assistance of of Jesus. 
because the cataracts of sin have blurred our vision. We need the great physician to operate on us through grace to remove those cataracts so that we can see the glory of God. What does the glory of God look like? Exactly. It looks just like the Lord Jesus. And at the end of these books this year, we'll see that glory um, peeled back for a little bit. Remember when the Lord told Philip, he said, he, hath, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John 4. No, it's not John 4. John 14 something. 9, I think, maybe. Do you, do you want to know what God is like? Then what do you do? You study the Lord Jesus, which is exactly what we've been doing in this Bible study. Do you know, want to know what God has to say to you? If you do, then you listen to who? Jesus. Actually, God spoke from heaven one time and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. He's the one who speaks for God. The Lord Jesus Christ is all that we need to know about God. At least for now, in this life. And I guess for all of eternity, he's all that we need to know about God because he is God. If you want to know God, then accept the Lord Jesus' invitation, which he gives next, right after this prayer, to come to himself and learn of him. Because he has promised that to whomsoever does so, whomsoever is willing to come to him and learn of him, he will do what? He will reveal his father. And that brings us to the Lord's final recorded invitation of his Galilean ministry. So let's look at it. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. The great invitation. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I challenge you this week to memorize that. Wonderful three verses to memorize. Did you ever stop to think (coughs) that the Lord Jesus Christ founded a school? (coughs) One far greater and one far more eternally valuable than any academy begun by anyone? They say the first academy was actually begun by the Greeks. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Yay! That's where the word comes from, was a playing field where Socrates first uh, recruited his first students. Not Socrates, excuse me, Plato. The first school, they say, came from Plato. And uh, he was trained by Socrates. And then one of Plato's great students was Aristotle, who began another school and went to another playing field called Lyceum, which is why the French call schools Lyces. And uh, anyway, the first schools supposedly began with the Greeks. But did you ever really think about Jesus Christ having started an academy? He did. When when did he first begin his school? Well, actually, probably from the day he first called Andrew and Peter and James and John to follow him, you know, and begin to learn of him. But uh, officially to the public... 
we might say that he founded it when he gave this invitation right here. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and what? Learn of me. Did you realize that you, everyone in this room, that you are actually a student enrolled in the Academy of Christ? You are. We could call this the Academy of Christ or the Lycee, if you're French, <laughs> the Lycee of the Lord or the Gymnasium of Jesus. Came up with all these silly names because in Germ- the Germanic people call their schools gymnasiums. Did you know that? They do. Instead of schools, they call them gymnasiums. I always think of doing flips or something. <laughs> but you are a student enrolled in the Academy of Christ. <clears throat> Because that's exactly what we are doing. You know what? Did you ever think about this? We are being so biblical here. (laughs) We are being so obedient by studying step by step and learning of Jesus in this study. So, you know, we really shouldn't worry about how many years it might take us to study his life because as we do so, we are being totally obedient. You do not have to worry that you're out of the will of the Lord Jesus Christ by coming to this Bible study. I can assure you, you are not, because we are learning of him, and that is his command. We are enrolled in the, um, in the Academy of Christ, <laughs> the Caldwell Academy of Christ. <laughs> no, that's taking too much glory for myself. Excuse me, Lord. Um, so, you know, some people have said, well, I wish we were studying this book, or I wish we were doing the book of Acts, or whatever. But, you know, I, I got even more convicted this week, and I thought, no, th- this is good. Even though we've done this before, some of you have been through this study before, and it took us eight years. At the rate we're going, it's going to be at least probably nine, maybe ten this time. (laughs) Some of us won't be here when we finish. (laughs) Maybe he will come before we finish, and then we can spend all of eternity learning of him. But it's interesting to think about the fact that in this school, when we enroll in Christ's Academy, he's not only the teacher— but he is the subject. That's an interesting school. Now, the Lord may have just given a most severe judgment as he upbraided those three Galilean cities, but he immediately, notice this, he immediately followed that woe pronouncement by extending his grace to the individual who has an ear to hear. Yes, the city's may suffer great punishment, but he still opens up an invitation to the individuals of those cities. He extends his mercy and his forgiveness to whosoever may feel the tug and the prompting of his words on their heart, the one who senses the burden of his or her own sin and guilt and their need for a Savior. Isn't it wonderful to to know, to understand that Jesus extends his invitation to salvation and to enroll in his school of learning to everyone? Isn't that wonderful? To whomsoever? Aren't you glad that he didn't say, come unto me all ye that are athletic? Speaking of flipping around in gymnasiums. <laughs> I'm really glad about that one. Aren't you glad he said, come unto me all ye that can sing? Or all ye that are rich enough to afford my tuition? <laughs> or all of you that are smart enough to enroll, you know, that have a, a high IQ? Or such and such or such and such. All the different things that he could have said. But aren't you glad that instead the glorious gospel invitation is for whosoever 
may will, whosoever will come. Everyone can rightly therefore say, everyone can say, Jesus included me. Kings and millionaires, scholars, peasants, simple-minded, brilliant, slaves, rich and poor, great and small, old and young, female and male, those from every race, every nationality, no one is excluded. All you have to realize is that you're heavily laden. With what? With the burden of your own sin. That poverty of spirit and that mournfulness over our sin. And notice that the Lord offered rest two times in this great invitation. One, the first one, is a given rest. He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. And the second is a found rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So the first rest, which is the given rest, the one that comes from him is, well, they both come from him, but the, one, the, the first one is given instantly when a person first trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say that it is comparable to receiving the peace with God that we receive at the time of our salvation. As soon as we're saved, we have peace with God. We've made our peace with God, and he gives us his rest, his spiritual rest. We no, no longer need to labor and be heavily laden with the burden of guilt and sin. Because he's removed it. The second rest, however, is the found rest. And that comes as we increasingly learn of Christ. As we increasingly follow him and obey him and trust in him and become more like him. Because the more we learn of him, it just sort of happens. The more we learn of him, the more we become like him. So it is comparable to receiving the peace of God as we grow in our spiritual maturity. In fact, then, he not only completely removes from our back the burden of our sin and guilt by forgiving us, but then he invites us to take his yoke upon him as we deal with the rest of life here on earth. You know, the rest of our lives after we're saved, the rest of our lives serving God while we're still here on earth. He says, take my yoke upon you. And I want to read... Rather than just talking about that, I want to read something that I thought was very good by Ivor Powell in his book on Matthew, which is called Matthew's Majestic Gospel. He said this, and he's talking about being yoked with Christ, which the Lord himself promised us is what? Easy. And his burden is light. So if if your walk with Christ isn't too easy in that you are leaning on him, you're probably doing something wrong. Maybe you haven't learned how to prioritize, you know. (laughs) Can't say yes to everything. But he does say his burden is easy or light, and his his yoke is is easy. All right, let me read this. He says, uh, to appreciate the beauty of this illustration, it is necessary to see a wise old ox standing patiently beside one side of the projecting arm of a plow. An unbroken, stubborn young animal, you know, a young ox, is to have its first lesson of servitude. With increasing indignation, the foolish youngster looks at the plow and says, never. 
Then after a few moments of thought, the animal continues. If that farmer thinks I am going to do his dirty work, he is wrong. I was made to roam and gaze in these wide open fields and not to be harnessed to that plow. If he tries to get me hitched to that contraption, I will kick it into the next field. The older, wiser ox calmly replies, Youngster, don't be so stupid. The master's way is better for all of us. If you get your way, your incessant grazing will soon take you to the slaughterhouse. Your fat old body will attract butchers, and you will soon be a memory. Now, if you have enough brains to understand, you will discover that a little work is good for everybody, including the master. When he knows that you are putting your best to your, into his work, he will treat you like a king. When he sees you pulling the plow, he will not sell you to the butcher. You will have a long and happy life, and even if the grass withers, the master will still feed you in the warm barn. If the weather is very bad, you will be able to sleep all day and night. So, youngsters, stop your bellowing and come over here alongside me. If you are willing to listen and learn, I will show you how to pull this plow. If you get tired, don't worry. I will be with you always. And in any case, I will take the heavy load of this, the heavy end of this load. You and I will live, work, and enjoy life together. Now, come on, let us get on with it. Who is the farmer, the master? God. Who is the old wise ox? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the young stubborn (laughs) ox? You and I. The Lord Jesus Christ takes the place of the wise old ox. And looking at his inexperienced followers... He invites them to share his yoke. He says, in effect, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I will show you how to work in God's fields. I will take the heavy end of the job. Just watch me. Learn from me. Copy me. Lean on me when you get tired. You and I will live and move and have our being together. I will never leave you. So come on, let's get on together with God's work. You know, the entire doctrine of Christianity, I thought about this this week, could really be given in four words, and they all start with the letter L. The whole Christian walk could be summarized in four words. Listen, lean, learn, and love. Listen, lean on who? On him. First of all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we have to listen, have to have ears to hear. Then we lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, trust him, lean on him. He's the the wise ox. And then um, learn of him and love. And that's what we get to next is greater pardon brings greater love. Let's look at Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. Greater pardon. We really should say greater awareness of pardon brings greater love. Luke 7, starting at verse 36. It says, And one of the Pharisees desired him, Jesus, that he would eat with him. 
and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, did Simon say anything out loud? No, he didn't, did he? He thought it, <laughs> I love this part. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. And here the Lord gives <clears throat> the parable of the two debtors. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly or freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith has, hath saved thee. Go in peace. Beautiful, beautiful account. Now this beautiful account is only found in Luke's gospel. And this is yet another example, therefore, of how beneficial it is for you and I to be studying the Lord's life chronologically. If we went just through Luke's gospel, the account of this woman would immediately follow the Lord's commendation of John the Baptist and then his condemnation of, of the religious rulers. If you just precede this. That's where this beautiful account of this woman would follow if we were not doing a chronological study of the Lord's life. But going step by step through all four Gospels and taking his life in sequence, as brilliant scholars, you know, to the best of their knowledge, have, have studied and, and determined, doing this, we find that this woman's story here actually followed on the, Lord's, uh, the, on the heels of the Lord's invitation to those who are heavy laden and burdened and weary, you know, with their guilt to come to him to find rest. And isn't that beautiful? 
It also follows on the heels of talking about the wise and prudent versus the babes, because that's what we have here. The wise and prudent being Simon the Pharisee and the babe being this woman. In all probability, the Lord's great invitation of Matthew 11, 28 to 30, was the saving of this woman's soul. Unlike the contrasting Pharisee, who is named Simon here, and Simon was a very, very common name back in those days, kind of like John today, a very common name. Unlike the contrasting Pharisee, she knew that she was a sinner in need of forgiveness. And the offer of rest from her burden of guilt was just what she needed to hear. I'm sure she had heard the Lord's invitation. I feel very confident of that. And when she heard it, she accepted it. And that was the saving of her soul. She didn't get saved in this scene. She's already saved in this scene. She is coming to show her appreciation of having been forgiven. So she responded in faith to that invitation. And then the peace and the love and the, uh, the rest that flowed into her soul could not be constrained. She just couldn't keep it constrained. And she knew that she just had to see Jesus again. She just had to express to him her thankfulness. She, ha- she had to pour out her love for him. Have you ever, did you feel that way when you first got saved? I know I did. My cup just overflowed. And all I could do was sing around the house. And I just wanted to praise him and, and worship him. And I thank God for this story because that has you know, helped to renew my spirit and remember back in those first days of salvation and how thankful I was to him. So resolving to brave the ridicule um, of the scornful who would be assembled together with the Lord and his disciples were probably there too at Simon the Pharisee's home. She entered into the open banquet room. It was customary back in those days for outsiders to hover around the house where a banquet was being served for an important guest. Uh, you know, they, they would allow, usually a lot of times these banquets would be held out in the open in a courtyard or something, and um, they, w- they would allow outsiders to come and be on the per- periphery around the banquet table so that they could listen to what the special guest would have to say. And it was very common if there was a known rabbi in town that the leading Uh, the leader of this uh, local synagogue or a Pharisee such as Simon would be expected to invite that special rabbi to his home for dinner. However, so it was common for outsiders to be there. They They didn't share in the meal, but they were there to hear the guests speak. However, women of the character of this particular woman who was a known sinner in that city, we don't know what city this took place in, but she was known as a sinner, probably a harlot, would be our best guess. And I think there is some, um, some of that suggested in the Greek wording that she was a harlot. Women of this character were never allowed <clears throat> in the homes of prominent people, least of all a Pharisee. Yet her love for the one who had invited her to come unto him to find spiritual rest was just too overwhelming for her to allow custom and proper etiquette to stand in her way. She just had to show her appreciation. She was a changed person inside, and she knew it. She felt it. 
You know, one minute, her past and her sinful lifestyle were crushing the very life out of her. And the next minute, she was hearing the clear, sweet voice of the living God himself offering her a second chance. He was offering her forgiveness and he was offering her rest from her heavy, heavy burden of sin. One minute she had been feeling the nagging pull of sin and of Satan. And then the next minute, the wonderful voice filled her ears and she was wooed by the tugging of God the Holy Spirit who beckoned her to receive the invitation that was extended to her to have a new and a pure heart. She must have thought within herself, how, how in the world could such an invitation be for me? Me. I'm such a sinner, such a wicked woman. How could this be for me? No one would even speak to her out in public. But this man, this great miracle worker, this one who all Israel was speaking about, had clearly said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And she understood that that definitely included her because she did feel heavily laden. As a babe, she then did what? She did just what he asked her to do. She came unto him. She opened her heart to him and she accepted the rest that he promised. And then the forgiveness came and the peace rolled over her and the burdens rolled away and the tears of joy replaced the tears of heartbreak. And the knowledge of divine acceptance replaced the feelings of long rejection. Peace with God slipped in while the panic and the pain of depravity slipped out. And love just filled her soul to overflowing until she knew that she would burst if she could not express that love in some manner to the one who loved her enough to save her. So off she had gone to Simon's house where she had heard that Jesus had just been invited to dine and she took with her the best things that she had to offer her savior she took her tears of love she took her heart and she took her precious perfume and when she entered into the courtyard and saw the Lord reclining at the table with his feet in the customary way would be extended out behind him. They would lean on their left elbow and they would just, you know, with their feet out behind them. When she entered into that courtyard and saw him like that, she forgot every ounce of her former shame. She became blind to everyone around her, to all the icy stares of the guests. And most of all, Simon, who you can imagine was probably projecting daggers through her. She came blind to all of that. The only thing she could focus on was Jesus. And she, we are told, she stood at his feet. Nobody said anything, which in, in itself is sort of a miracle, you know, that no one grabbed her and pulled her out. And he said nothing to rebuke her. He didn't say, get away from me. No one spoke. If you can imagine, he simply looked at her with love in his eyes and forgiveness and kindness she had indeed been accepted 
and she would know that when she saw him looking at her. She realized that, and then the tears, she lost control, like I'm trying to hold on here. She lost control, and the tears just poured out, and they began to drop on his feet. And she bent down, and she began to dry them away with the long tresses of her hair, which I don't know if she came in that way or if she took it down. But either way, she was not thinking of the shame of a woman having her hair down in public. She forgot all about that. She just wanted to serve her Lord. And again, she didn't, she didn't care that she was unveiled either. We know she must have been unveiled for the tears were freely dropping down onto his feet. She just wanted to use what she had to wash those precious feet that had carried the message of forgiveness to her ready ears. And the tears, in the Greek it says they just conti- she continued to cry and she continued to kiss. I mean, the tears kept pouring down and she continued to dry his feet. But it still wasn't enough. She felt compelled to kiss those wonderful feet and to, as I said, keep on kissing them. And although she didn't know it, the next recorded kiss that he would ever experience would be one which would precede the horrible, tearing pain of a Roman nail piercing through the tissue and the bone and the nerves of those very precious feet. You know the Lord was only kissed twice in the Gospels? This woman kissing his feet and Judas and the kiss of betrayal that just preceded the piercing of those precious feet. Even still, the woman was not through with her expression of love for the Savior. She then took her her alabaster box of expensive perfume, and what did she do? Broke it and spilled out. I always think of that song, Mary. She, she broke it and she spilled it out on the Lord's feet. You know, later, near the time of his crucifixion, another very thankful woman, not the same woman, another woman, named Mary of Bethany, would also break and spill out an alabaster box of expensive perfume. But do you know what she did with hers? She anointed the Lord's head. You can read about that in Matthew 26, 7. So the Lord was anointed from feet to head by thankful, loving women during his time of ministry here on earth. Women who were willing to show him their gratitude and love without worrying about what others around them might think. They were willing to be broken and spilled out for him. And can we do any less? Can we? Can we do any less for him who was broken and spilled out for us? Should not our prayer be, Lord, I want to love you with the unashamed love of this forgiven woman. I want to give you my very, very best, even if all I have to offer you is my love and my heart and my tears of joy and whatever earthly treasures I may possess. I want to give them to you to demonstrate to you my thankfulness for what you have done for me. I don't want to be ashamed of demonstrating my love for you in front of a unbelieving world that should be our prayer right whatever you have to give to the lord give it to him 
I remember when I first got saved, I thought, what can I give him? I don't know what I can give him. I can't sing. I can't, I can't play an instrument. I don't know what I can give you, Lord, but I can give you my heart. I can be a living sacrifice for you. I don't mind studying for you. Give him what you have and serve him because he definitely deserves it. Well, in great contrast to the response of this forgiven woman, Simon the Pharisee stands as a representative of all those who consider themselves the wise and the prudent. In his self-righteous mindset, all he could see was a sinful, fallen woman fondling this man. And notice he thinks of Jesus as what? This man who had been called a prophet by the common people. Surely, however, Simon was thinking to himself, surely this man could be no true prophet of God. He, he would never have allowed himself, if he was, he would never have allowed himself to be touched and handled by a, by a woman, much less a woman like this woman. Furthermore, if he was the true Messiah, as he's claiming to be, he would know the wickedness of this woman. He would know who she is. He would know her if he was truly who he says he is. But you see, this critical Pharisee, little did he realize that the very one whose person he was scorning was reading his thoughts like they were an open book. <laughs> Let's not forget that. The Lord can read us like an open book. His, Simon's problem was that his own self-righteousness, his own perceived wisdom, had made him spiritually blind. He was blind to three things, and actually those three things are three persons. First of all, he was blind to himself. He did not see the wickedness of his own sinful heart. He could see the obvious external sins of others, such as this woman whose sins were probably known by the entire town, but he could not see his own internal sin of the heart, such as especially his pride and his mercilessness and his lack of compassion and all that, his critical spirit. He couldn't see those things. He was also, secondly, not only blind to himself, he was blind to the woman. He could not see her as another member of the human race in the same lost condition as himself, needing love, needing mercy, needing understanding as much or even more so as anyone else in that room. He did not see her as having been created in the image of God. An eternal soul who needed forgiveness and compassion and mercy and peace with God. He could only see her as one thing. He saw her as a sinful woman who was now bringing great embarrassment and shame upon his house and him. Third, and most important, Simon was blind to the person of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. His invitation to dine with him had obviously not been done out of good intentions because he had demonstrated none of the common courtesies of an eastern home when the Lord had entered his home. <clears throat> Most likely, Simon's invitation had been extended out of curiosity or perhaps extended as, you know, because it was expected of him as one of the leaders of his community to invite the visiting rabbi to his home. Or probably, most likely, he invited Jesus to dinner in order to find some fault with him, which is what he readily did when the woman entered the scene. 
but really which was already obvious even before the woman entered the scene because uh, of his open rudeness, really, in not having um, washed the Lord's feet, you know, and extended him a kiss and then anointed his head. That was the, the common standards of that day, and he, he was just short of rudeness in not having done that. Now, some might wonder why the Lord even accepted Simon's invitation to dine in the first place. But we must remember that Jesus loved Simon as much as he loved the sinful um, and now repentant, forgiven woman. He longed, the Lord longed to win the soul of Simon as much as he had longed to win the soul of the woman. And as much as he longs to win the souls of every man, woman, boy, or girl who has ever lived. Entering into the smug, self-righteous household of Simon the Pharisee was no different for the Lord Jesus to do than entering into the cold, hostile atmosphere of this world. When you think about it, one was just a small extension of the other. Simon did not see himself at all as a sinner in need of a savior, as the woman weeping in front of him. And therefore, we're told that he, he uh, experienced little forgiveness, really no forgiveness. Um, he felt no love because he did not sense his need for forgiveness. He did not see himself in need at all of salvation. He saw himself as what? An A-OK religious guy. Uh, you know, much better, he thought, than, than most people. He could not see the woman for what she had become as a new creature in Christ, but only for what she had been. However, the Lord wasn't finished with Simon. The precious woman at his feet had become a child of the kingdom. And now the Lord wanted Simon to enter into that same position. So he revealed to Simon that he was indeed the Messiah, didn't he? He really did reveal his omniscience to Simon. He not only had the power to forgive the woman of her sins, which he publicly stated that he had done, but he also had the power to read Simon's thoughts. And that must have shocked Simon. You know, how did he know what I was thinking? And the Lord did that by way of his parable of the two debtors. In that parable, the Lord put both the woman and Simon on the same plane, on the same level. They both owed a debt that they could not pay. You know, one owed ten times more than the other, but neither of them, we are told, had any means to pay off their debts. Both of them in the parable were bankrupt. We are told that they had nothing to pay. And isn't that like us? There's no way we can pay, our, pay off our debt, our spiritual debt. We absolutely have nothing to offer. Jesus said that the creditor in this parable forgave the full amount of both of these debtors. And then, turning to Simon, and this, this is a parable, so you can't take it literally to mean that he forgave Simon, okay, of his sins. He's just using this as an illustration here. He, he said that the creditor forgave both of them the full amount, and then he asked Simon, which debtor would love the creditor the most? And it doesn't take a theology professor to uh, hear Simon's reluctance in, in his answer when he says, I suppose that he to whomsoever he, he forgave the most. You think Simon got the gist of the parable? 
<laughs> I think he got it, but he didn't really want to admit it. You know, so he says, I suppose. Getting the right answer, the Lord then made application, as he always does, <clears throat> of his parable. Well, not always, but because the parable actually conceals truth a lot of times to those who don't have ears to hear. But in this, time, in this case, he did make application. In a few short but heart-revealing sentences, he forced Simon to take a look at the woman at his feet and at himself. He wanted him to look at the woman and to look at, you know, to do introspection of himself. He also wanted Simon to take a look at him, at Jesus. He said to Simon, and this is paraphrased, do you see this woman? Now, of course, Simon saw her because she was right there. But he's saying, do you see her with, you know, with eyes of uh, spiritual eyes? Do you see this woman? You know, Simon, when I entered into your home, you didn't even give me any kind of common courtesy. You didn't give me water to bathe my dusty feet. You didn't receive me with a welcoming kiss. You didn't bring out oil for my head. But this woman, who you see only as a debtor, a sinner, has been used by God to take your place. She has received the blessings of serving me that could have been yours. She has lovingly done for me everything that you neglected to do. She has not ceased to kiss my feet since I got here. And she has anointed them, even with her expensive ointment. Do you know why she has done these things for me, Simon? Because she has realized her debt. And yes, it was a large amount because her sins were great. The Lord doesn't deny that. But she has been forgiven. Her debt has been totally wiped clean. She owes nothing. But now she wants to serve me out of her gratitude. You know, it's really not the amount of the debt that brings the greater love. It's the awareness of the debt that brings the greater love. And she had a much greater awareness of her debt. And so all she wanted now was to serve him with her tears and with her kisses and with her hair and with her ointment because she had greater love. She realized how great has been the forgiveness that she received. And therefore, he, Jesus says, she loves me greatly. You, though, Simon, um, have not, you know, you have not loved me because you have not realized your sin debt. You thought that if I were a true prophet and if I was really the Messiah, I would see this woman for who she is. And you know what, Simon? You're absolutely right. I do see her. I see her as a forgiven sinner, loving her Savior. I see her for what she is going to be one day when I am finished perfecting her. I see her as a shining light in heaven, dressed in the clothes of righteousness. I see her as a child of God. I see her name even now written in the Lamb's book of life. I see the angels rejoicing. I see the crowns that she has earned that she will one day cast at my feet, which she is now kissing and washing with her tears. But Simon, do you see her? Do you even see yourself, Simon? Do you see that you, like her, have no way whatsoever of paying your own sin debt? Do you realize the debt that you cannot pay even if you lived 1,000 lifetimes? 
However, you know what Simon's biggest problem was? Not that he couldn't see the woman for who he, she was, and not that he couldn't see himself for who he was. His biggest problem was that he did not see who Jesus was, that he was the only one who could pay that debt for him. Now, whether Simon had his soul awakened, we do not know. We don't hear more from him. But one day, we'll look around heaven to see if he's there. I hope the Savior got through to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. From the bottom of our hearts and souls, thank you for the miracle of forgiveness, the miracle of salvation, for sending your Son to pay the debt we could never, ever pay. And Father, may each of us be aware of just how great our debt was so that like this forgiven woman, we might love you so much that nothing is too much to give to you, especially our hearts and our lives. We know, Father, that greater awareness of pardon brings greater love, greater privilege brings greater judgment. So help us to be aware of our pardon and our privilege that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For we pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.